Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March 10th, 2022. I'm talking to you, as always, from San Francisco. The news, of course, today remains completely dominated by the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. New York Times talks about the Russian slow progress. The FT focuses on the failure of talks. The Wall Street Journal, uh, the Wall Street Journal focuses on uh, Russian attacks on Mariupol. Um, and there's a, a sort of a, a, a secondary story that's beginning to bubble underneath the issue of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine which is about Russian isolation. Uh, New York Times had a piece about Russia being blocked from the global internet. Uh, some civil groups uh, are suggesting this might not be a great thing. And of course, an associated story um, is the way in which Russians and Ukrainians are using American technology, American social media, uh, to fight the war, uh, the Washington Post reports on pro-Russian rebels who are still using Facebook to recruit fighters. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Sheryl Sandberg, who is the number two person at Meta, once known as, as Facebook, uh, is in Dubai, doesn't seem to be too bothered by the whole thing. But not all of Silicon Valley uh, is completely irresponsible. Uh, Google is trying to uh, block YouTube payments in Russia and is trying to use um, its Android uh, phones to send air raid uh, alerts. So uh, all in all, it's a complicated situation. Oddly enough, the Chinese state media are buying meta ads, pushing the Russian line on the war. Uh, on the war. So it's it's bringing into focus many of our concerns and worries um, of the, the digital economy. Uh, meanwhile, Russia restricts social media. And my understanding is that one can't really use certainly American social media in Russia. So I'm curious, how is this all impacting on critics of American technology, particularly social media companies like Facebook and Google? Uh, my guest today, Ari Ezra Waldman, um, has a book out, Industry Unbound, The Inside Story of Privacy, Data, and Corporate Power. And uh, he's joining me from New York. Ari, um, before we get into your book, has this war changed your mind about our prioritization of social media and our fear of, of, of big tech companies like Facebook and Google? Has it brought it into kind of context what Putin is doing? Or is it underline the importance of what you're arguing in Industry Unbound? Well, it certainly underlies the importance of the power that our technolo technology corporate behemoths have over us. And they can determine uh, what we see, what we hear, what we learn, what we think is true. They can determine the state of knowledge in society. You just listed a couple of examples of uh, totalitarian states buying uh, Russian ads to push a particular line, a particular false line about the story. So 
when we're thinking about technology companies writ large, right, their role not just in using or collecting our data, but also in the, how they construct knowledge, the war in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine by, um, by Vladimir Putin is, of course, a tragedy, but also yet another example of how our future can be determined by the decisions that corporate, that, that technology companies make on the inside. And that is mainly what Industry Unbound is all about. Uh, this, the subtitle of Industry Unbound is the inside story of privacy data and corporate power. What is the inside story, Ari, that you're telling that hasn't been told before in Industry Unbound? The inside story is how companies actually do the work of privacy. So there's been so much written about new privacy laws, about law on the books, about people who think privacy is dead, but then people who say, you know, privacy is still with us, about what privacy means, about, you know, new proposals for protecting privacy. All of that is about the law on the books. It's what they, what people say or what people write in write in the, on statutes. Lots of column mentions written about the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe, but very little, almost nothing, has been written about what all that means and how it actually works in practice. Because all those laws, all those court decisions, all those statutes, they require real people working inside technology companies to fill out forms, to conduct impact assessments, to engage in compliance, to ensure that their companies are adhering to the law, but in the process, they're interpreting what the law is. That, that liminal space, that interpretation of what the law is and then the application of it in practice, that, has, that hasn't been written about really at all. And that's the perfect realm for a sociologist, a, law and a lawyer and sociologist like me, because that's where law matters, you know, how it's actually implemented and how it actually affects real people. I mentioned Cheryl Sandberg earlier. She's in Dubai celebrating Women's Rights Day of all places. <laughs> Certainly Facebook, Meta, Instagram, whatever you want to call it, um, is public enemy number one um, in, in terms of privacy. In your book, Industry Unbound, do you focus on particular companies? Are Google, for example, or, or Facebook, are they uh, are, are they the worst, or are there other companies that we less that we know less about who are actually perpetrating um, more chilling um, initiatives in terms of the law and privacy? The narrative that I discuss in the book plays out really anywhere, and it can play out anywhere. Um, this is really an ethnography of. Um, uh, an ethnography based on interviews that I've conducted with hundreds of engineers and privacy professionals and privacy lawyers, mostly but not exclusively in tech-oriented tech companies in Silicon Valley, in New York, and Los Angeles. Um, but it also includes data from being embedded inside three medium-sized technology companies. So we're not talking about the only. Yeah, which, which are those three? You want to name them? I can't say um, because a for research ethics and also because my research was not about these particular companies. They were about you know practices in general. So there, the way I did the way I was allowed to get this kind of access was to um, 
sign confidentiality agreements to ensure that I wasn't giving over proprietary information, which I wasn't interested in. I was interested in just their processes, their organizational systems. So as a result, what I saw was the data that I gathered was the was at as a result of uh, being embedded inside these medium-sized technology companies, but also interviews with current and former employees of big tech. So as a result, oh, which kind of companies did you talk? Uh, did you talk to former employees of? We I talked to former current and former employees of companies at Facebook, Uber. Uh, LinkedIn, Apple, all the big companies had uh, some of their some of their former employees were represented in the data set. What I don't understand though is you would expect this of big companies. They they employ many lawyers. They pay them a lot of money. Isn't it logical that they would try to negotiate the law for their own benefit? What's wrong with that? Well, that's how the that's how law works in so when it's operating within a corporate structure. Part of the big problem is that the law on the books expects that the law will be complied with in a manner that is keyed toward the general welfare, it's not keyed not keyed toward the managerial or profit making goals of the company. So, for example, the general data protection regulation in Europe it can really be divided into two parts. One is a series of individual rights, and the other is a series of compliance obligations that are supposed to encourage a company to integrate privacy throughout everything that they do. But at the core of this compliance model is this presumption that a privacy department or privacy lawyers or privacy people are, A, going to integrate privacy into every level, i.e. from the C-suite all the way down to engineers, and B, they're going to honestly, um, honestly comply and do what they can to reflect privacy values. In the case of Europe, a human privacy is a human right, a foundational human right of the European Union's um, foundational documents in a way that protects privacy inside the company. But what we see is that's not the case, right? The, any law that is based on or relies on corporate goodwill or an internal department that's supposed to put the brakes on corporate behavior is one of the one of the things this book shows is that that's not going to work because those offices are not independent they're the product of and manipulated by organizational structures that are there to make profit right and in informational capitalism all that means the collection and processing of data so, so what you're saying is that the guys in sales uh, don't want the lawyers to fiddle around with their business model and undermine revenue. Is that basically the argument? That's uh, There's more to it, right? I'll give you an yeah, example. But again, should that be surprising? That's always the case within any company, that there's always tensions, arguments between sales and product and, and, and legal. I mean, that goes without saying. There's always tension, but... When a company says that they are integrating privacy into all all elements of their business, well, right? They always say that. We've been hearing this for years, but no one actually believes them. I don't think they even expect us to believe it, do they? Well, Congress believes them. States who are passing laws that rely on these companies to integrate privacy into all elements of their business unit believes them. Those people who wrote the GB GDPR believe them. Anyone who's in policy right now 
believes that these companies are integrating privacy into all their business units. Even some scholars who just decided to interview chief privacy officers took them at their word. So you might be coming at this from a cynical or a more realist standpoint, but law is being made right now based on the belief that these companies are actually integrating privacy into all elements of their businesses. But it's also not so simple that it's just tension between departments. It's, and it's also not so simple as companies lying and saying that, oh, we're doing privacy, but actually we're not. It's that companies are actually hiring people who really do care about privacy. But in the process of how these companies operate, even those people are being manipulated into advancing anti-privacy work. They don't even realize how they're being co-opted by an organizational structure into achieving goals. So I'll give you an example, right? A company can talk a lot about how much they care about privacy, but it also matters what they mean by privacy. One of the things that I saw over and over again is that the particular definition that the chief privacy officers, privacy lawyers, executives, even engineers and salesperson have about privacy is just about choice, right? So it's just about giving you an opportunity to click agree, to toggle a button. And, you know, that is in the scholarship too. There are lots of people who think about privacy as the choice whether or not to share information. If you integrate that vision of privacy into your company, then anyone in that company can honestly say that they're integrating privacy into every element of their business unit, but that particular definition of privacy is so narrow and so myopic and so corporate friendly that it ends up allowing more data extraction than uh, you might imagine. But at the same time, the people that they hire who say they earnestly believe in privacy can, can, earn, can honestly say, yes, I'm integrating privacy into every element of this business. We are talking with Ari Ezra Waldman, the author of Industry Unbound, the inside story of privacy data and corporate power. He laid out his stall in the first half of the show in terms of the problem with uh, today's uh, big tech companies when it comes to privacy. Um, we're going to take a short break, Ari, and after the break, I, I want to talk about whether you believe that basically there's a, a structural incompatibility between the business models of big tech companies and privacy law, firstly. And secondly, perhaps more importantly, what are we going to do about it? So we're going to take 60 seconds now, and then we'll be back with Ari Ezra Wardman, the author of Industry Unbound. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, 
as opposed to simply listening. Um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Ari Ezra Wardman, the author of Industry Unbound, really interesting. I mean, uh, when, when the book come out, Ari, it's it's not this year. Was it last year? Yes, it was the uh, toward the end of 2021. So Just about a new book, uh, uh, Industry Unbound, the inside story of privacy, data, and corporate power. His inside story is very troubling. He suggests that there are profound reasons why big tech companies are not instituting the privacy laws that they're supposed to be doing. Uh, Ari, is this structural? Is there something going on in what Shoshana Zuboff called surveillance capitalism that means that big tech companies simply aren't capable for one reason or other of conforming to the, the kind of privacy laws like the GDPR, which are now on the books in the EU and the US? I think this is more of an example of what Julie Cohen calls informational capitalism, capitalism or the law of informational capitalism. The difference here is that um, Shoshana Zuboff's argument about the role of law in the development of surveillance capitalism is basically that law was absent, that law kind of allowed this to happen without doing anything. But that's actually not the case. The case, as Julie Cohen describes in her book, which also which came out in 2020. And I'm trying to get Julie actually on the show. Both both you and and her were recommended to me by uh, uh, by uh, your your mutual friend um, who was on the show last week, uh, Danielle. Danielle Citron, who is right. also another online privacy theorist at the University of Virginia. So, so yes, we'll probably get uh, Cohen on the show at some point. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Her argument, which I think is a more accurate description of what the law of how the law interacts with informational capitalism and uh, the use of data for profit, is that um, opportunistic economic actors, you know, these big companies, are actually using law to enable their business model, to protect and to grow their business model. So it's not that law has been absent; law has been an integral player here. So I don't think it's correct to say that these companies are incapable of implementing the GDPR. What's more correct, and what I think my book and Julie Cohen's book show, is that these companies have specifically performed and designed and encouraged the development of laws such that they can implement it in a way that makes it seem like on the surface that they're integrating privacy into their companies, but are actually, in truth, enabling more and more data extraction while protecting their business model. Law was an integral player here. The fact that the GDPR is a compliance-based model, a compliance-based law was critical because it allowed the allowed tech companies to 
follow rules that create kind of the rules of the game, rules of the road, without interrupting or without challenging the very business model, the structural systems inside informational capitalism that lead to data extraction and the destruction of our privacy. Uh, Ari, one of the criticisms I've heard made by many people, and it seems quite persuasive, is the problem with GDPR is it's so complicated that only the big companies can afford the kind of high-priced, sophisticated lawyers to negotiate it. In your book, Industry Unbound, in your inside story, are you finding that the larger big tech companies, I mean, by definition, I guess they're large big tech companies, are they more successful in negotiating the system and essentially colonizing it to their own interests than startups, smaller companies who, who aren't able to afford high-priced lawyers? Uh, large and wealthy companies are always going to be able to do that with any law, right? That's not anything new with the GDPR or data governance or privacy or data protection law. Um, large companies with their lawyers and their money, they are... Uh, first movers in framing what compliance means. That's a classic understanding of the sociology of law. There's nothing exciting or new about that. But the point here isn't that these companies frame it or uh, manipulate the law to their liking. The in industry as a whole has done that. Um, certainly big companies may lead the charge, but it's not that small companies can't comply with the GDPR. The GDPR involves costs. There are compliance costs, but really those costs are quite minimal when you actually look at them. They are record keeping. A small company that doesn't have a big uh, privacy department can outsource privacy compliance to vendors. You can pay a couple, you can pay vendors uh, several hundred, maybe a couple thousand dollars to automate your compliance, almost like a Mad Libs for privacy compliance. Um, you can hire someone to be a privacy manager. You don't have to hire an entire office, but if you hire a privacy manager that complies with Federal Trade Commission consent decrees, it complies with the GDPR. Certainly, there are things that large companies can do in-house that small companies can't. And it's always going to be the case that large companies are going to be in a better position to lead or manipulate or marshal law to their uh, monopolistic uh, goals. But it's not the case. It is simply not the case that GDPR is this onerous or that the California consumer privacy law is this onerous thing that only large companies can follow. Lots of companies can engage in procedural compliance. It's just that this procedural compliance is so weak that even when any company does it, it's not at all affecting the business model. So let's accept uh, or let's accept um... Ari, that you're right. Let's accept that currently the system isn't working and that these companies are cleverly getting around the law. Laws like GDPR, which I'm assuming you think is a good law in terms of protecting privacy. It's certainly not ideal, but it's better than nothing. What needs to change? How are we going uh, to reform the system so that both big and small tech begin to conform with privacy laws and respect our privacy, because after all, this is not some esoteric debate. This is about how these companies are watching us and know everything about us. And for many of us, this is simply unacceptable. You're absolutely right about highlighting the importance of this conversation. I, as an aside, I don't think the GDPR is a good or strong or uh, a good or strong law that has moved the converse that has changed 
the well, you keep on going on about it as if it is. So I mean, if it isn't, then let's not even mention it. But well, I've discussed are there laws it, that I've you actually on... approve of that these these companies are not conforming with. What I'm actually saying is that the GDPR is exactly the law that this com these companies want because all they need to do is follow these very simple, very superficial procedural rules that don't okay. so, affect so the I, I take that point. So the yeah. GDPR benefits these companies. What do we need to do, Ari, to, to change the system, to protect our privacy? So the law needs to regulate the business model. Uh, it needs to change the underlying incentives that create, that put upward pressure on gathering information. So what does that look like? That looks, there are a lots of different ways to approach this. One thing to do is to prohibit uh, um, ad targeting, right? To prevent companies from charging, from creating an economy based on gathering hundreds of thousands of data points, throwing it into an algorithm and deciding that these are the most likely customers and then targeting those people with um, advertisements that retailers pay for. That is the base business model of the internet and especially particularly social media. And if we allow this to continue, it's going to continually put upward pressure on gathering more and more information, using more AI to manipulate and process the data that they collect. Yeah, we, uh, we did a show uh, last month with Jacob Ward, who's written a book on AI and the way in which we're increasingly being targeted uh, by algorithms. So there's a lot of work being done in that area too. Um, you say that we need to create law which essentially challenge the core business model of the internet. I mean, the reality is even in Europe, Margaret Vestager, who's perhaps as aggressive in terms of big tech as anyone, even she isn't doing that. How realistic is that? What's realistic today and what's realistic tomorrow are two very different things. One of the reasons why certain things are not realistic today is because no one has talked about them before. No one has proposed. No one has decided to go outside this narrow neoliberal frame and say we need to do something different. Think about Think about universal health care in the United States. That was barely on the radar 10, 15 years ago until the progressive movement or progressive movement on the left made it a national question. So we're not going to turn on a switch tomorrow, right? No proposal any time to solve any social problem is going to turn on a switch and solve it tomorrow, right? But what we need to start thinking about are thinking about law not as enabling corporate power and data extraction, but as a counterweight to corporate power. And what does that look like? That looks like a more aggressive regulator. Right now, the Federal Trade Commission in the United States is utterly incapable of handling any or most forms of regulation of big tech companies such that they have to outsource it to the companies themselves. We need to change that model. We need to empower the FTC to um, be a much more active, engaged. Uh, is this like, uh, you know, it's an interesting point. I don't think it's particularly realistic, but it's interesting. Is this likely to come from the left or the right, Harry? Donald Trump was a very outspoken critic of social media, at least when it, when, when it didn't agree with him. Uh, the left has also been critical of social media. It seems as if it's one of those issues that unites Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Where do you see the, the politics of this coming from, if it's actually going to happen? That's, a, I think, a superficial understanding of what's happening in politics. The claims no, on it the isn't. What do you mean a superficial 
the claims on the right are disingenuous and they're also almost exclusively about social media. They're not about privacy or data collection. The claims on the right are about Facebook has an anti-competitive, anti-conservative bias and therefore we should regulate them. There's absolutely no evidence that Facebook has an anti-conservative bias and they actually don't want to regulate these companies in any way that it would actually protect user privacy. So what they want to do is regulate these companies to enhance their own power. So as a result, those claims should be disregarded. That's not the proper way to regulate social media to enhance the Republican Party's access to, um, uh, to a mouthpiece to society. Um, from the, the Democrats in, the, in both the United States Senate and Congress, as well as in the states, have been closer to proposing more effective laws. Most of them, most of the laws proposed in the states have been GDPR or California Consumer Privacy Act copycats in that they're, they uh, maintain or in, entrench the same weaknesses of the individual rights and compliance-based model. But there are some proposals that are getting closer. Senator Sherrod Brown, who's a Democrat of Ohio, proposed, an, uh, proposed a bill in the United States Senate that would focus far more on civil rights violations as associated with um, associated with uh, data collection. Well, and that's where your friend, uh, uh, sorry, your, your friend um, Daniel Cit uh, Danielle Citron, she talks about online privacy as a core civil right. So uh, are you suggesting that this somehow gets rethought in, in terms of civil rights legislation? That's one option, right? So what uh, Professor Citron is talking about is the need to use civil, the need to create a civil rights agenda to protect intimate privacy, to protect privacy associated with things about our sex and our behaviors and anything, anything associated with our intimate selves. I think we need, in this space, we need to go a little bit beyond this and say that in data extraction in the information economy writ large is associated with or should reflect um, it is can be a civil rights violation when it results in harm, when it results in harms like manipulation, when it results in harms like discrimination, when it results in harms like misinformation that affects. So how, how would you respond to uh, the argument out of Silicon Valley that some of the stuff you, you may be saying is probably true, but it's no more or less true than any other industry, and that if you do this, you undermine the real the motor of the American economy. I mean, these companies are enormously powerful and, uh, and, and, and wealthy. They create huge amount of jobs. What, what would your response be in terms of undermining the, the core business model of, of many big data companies in, in Silicon Valley? Every single structure of corporate power has since the dawn of time argued that if you regulate us, you're going to stifle innovation. Innovation, this word, it somehow got this, uh, this aura of invincibility that innovation is the ultimate goal, right? Well, innovation is not a good in and of itself, right? A, or, or first, it's a lie. It is simply not true that regulation stifles innovation generally. What regulation does, what the role of law and norms are, is to guide innovation in a way that matches society's values or what the law or people or what Dem democracy wants if we had an actual functioning democracy. Could you give but, some examples from other industries, your models for this? What is it, the food industry perhaps, or 
uh, the in, automotive in any industry throughout history. You know, when we went after in the progressive era, when we went after the big trust, Standard Oil, Big Sugar, all of these companies said, if you limit us, if you shrink us, if you force us to devolve into little itty bitty companies, you're going to destroy the American economy. Uh, uh, no, they just adjusted. The tobacco industry said, if you go after us from for uh, lying to people and targeting our, our cigarettes to children, look at how many people we employ. You're going to destroy this economy. The NRA, the National Rifle Association, made the argument about um, not it made the argument that we shouldn't hold gun manufacturers civilly liable when they make it really easy to turn a non-automatic weapon into an automatic weapon. Because look at all the jobs that they will that. So really you're 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 comparing. I don't know, Facebook and Google with the NRA and big oil, I assume big pharma as well. You're suggesting they're really no different in basically. There is no difference between a monopolist that uses data to make profit and a monopolist that uses oil to make profit. The the power that they have is the same. The underlying economic structures are different, right? Informational capitalism is different than industrial capitalism in many different ways. But these are economic structures of power that are seeking to leverage their strength to subordinate to subordinate us to maintain their power right and every single time the every single time democracy tries to regulate these companies the word innovation comes up and it's Sorry, what happens if we don't do something about this i saw an interesting headline today um about in order to punish Putin, U.S. firms are developing what somebody called a social credit system that would make Putin proud. The social credit system, of course, is one that's being pioneered in China, which rewards and punishes their citizens according to their uh, political obedience. So we did a show earlier this week with Tom Hartman, the radio uh, personality, uh, entitled The Hidden, uh, he's got a new book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, uh, How the Death of Privacy and the Rise of Surveillance Threaten Us and Our Democracy. Are you suggesting that America and China will increasingly look alike unless we address this issue head on? There are many layers there that differentiate the United States and China. Our um, our fall away from democracy is different, right? But in terms of our data collection and our systems of surveillance, we, we, our government and our um, industry are extraordinarily large systems of surveillance that are able to know what we want, that are, think that they know what we want before we know, that are able to pick out individuals from a large crowd at a Black Lives Matter protest and pull them off the street for having a parking ticket. Um, our, our government and, our, and the relationship between government and industry may not be the same as it is in China, but it's a surveillance juggernaut. So that, we're, on the, we're on the road to 1984, Ari, unless we do something about this. That's what you're saying. We are already in a surveillance state. I mean, there, there are things that we can do to reclaim our privacy. And I talk about only some of them in the book. There are many other things that we need to do. But we live in a world where we have allowed our, um, we have allowed an economy to develop where we are mere commodities. We are mere data points.
And I'm not convinced, though. I mean, you've read 1984, of course. Uh, I don't feel like I'm living in 1984. Do you? Do you feel you're being watched all the time? Are there cameras in your home? You and I are on camera right now. But is anyone really interested in what either of us are saying? I hope a few people. But basically, do you think anyone from government cares what you're saying? So two answers to this. One is you made the 1984 analogy. I didn't. But there are cameras and listening devices in many people's homes, and they don't realize the extent to which those devices are learning from them, are using the information that they collect and making them uh, making other people very, very knowledgeable and very, very rich. Based Give me on a that. concrete example of how that works. So we saw we saw about we saw a lot of it in the news about a year ago, where anyone who has Amazon Echo or anyone who has cameras outside their doors, Amazon was allowing was uh, automatically connect, connecting cameras to create this sort of community, almost panopticon. And you the Amazon you had to default. It, it was it was allowed as a default, right? So Amazon was collecting information from linking cameras together. People who have automated assistance inside their homes, you have Siri in your phones, all of these tools, you don't- Why is Amazon doing that then? What's the point? Because Amazon wants more data and more power, right? Data equals power in informational capitalism. And the more money, the more data that you have, the more money you can make, the more targeting you can engage in, the more money you can charge to advertisers, the more you can undercut your competitors. More data means more power for companies like Amazon, Facebook, and small companies or companies that don't get as much attention, even TikTok, right? All of these companies are engaged in the collection of information in order to beef up their bottom line, and we are the victims. We may be the victims, at least we are, according to Aria's Rewardman, Industry Unbound, the inside story of privacy data and corporate power. Very interesting new book, new take on the coercive, chilling nature of uh, big tech companies in America. Ari, in addition to your book, what should people be reading these days? What other books? Well, there is a new book out by my colleague Neil Richards at the at Washington University in St. Louis called Why Privacy uh, what yeah, Neil, Neil was on the show too. Oh, excellent. Um, professor- You're a little mafia of anti uh, of privacy people, all of you. We have a, we have a little click. Um, Rick Hassan at the University at UCI, University of California in, in Irvine, has a new book coming out called Cheap Speech, which talks about the role of you know, lies and misinformation in the election context. And I'd recommend everything that the Princeton professor Ruha Benjamin has written, not just her classic book, Race After Technology, but she has a new book called Viral Justice, How We Want to Grow the World We Want, which talks about or helps answer some of the questions that you were asking about what's next. What do we do next in order to create a more liberatory or emancipatory role for humans in informational capitalism? It's good stuff. How things change in 20 years. Remember 20 years ago, Larry Lessig and his group of law professors were talking this stuff up. <laughs> and it seems as if the law schools have changed their mind on the internet. Uh, certainly Ari Ezra, I don't know if you uh, Waldman ever believed in it, but he certainly is, is one of its leading critics. Now, Ari Ezra, uh, Waldman, uh, author of Industry Unbound, finally, and I, I know I can guess, I think, what you're going to say here. Who runs the world, Ari? Who's in charge? <laughs> Uh, big tech companies are the leaders are defining for us what our world looks like. 